0: Welcome to another episode of the Watchdog for Mint Press. Today, we are again going against the grain with more investigative and searing journalism that the world needs in the public interest. For that reason, I hope that you can support us by liking and sharing this video and contributing to Patreon. Today, we are joined by the legendary Professor David. Miller. He is in the midst of a major crisis whereby we have seen actors connected to the Israeli state, pushing him out of his position at Bristol University. David, how are you?
1: Uh, I'm well, Karim. Um, I hope you're well too.
0: It's really good to be joined by you. Thank you for giving us this time right now. To start with, it would be great if you could give the viewers an idea of who you are and what you do uh, pre all of this.
1: So uh, my name is David Miller, I am uh, I call myself an investigative researcher, which means that I um, do research on how the world operates um, from the perspective that things which uh, the processes which run the world are not necessarily easily visible to the naked eye, um, which means that you have to investigate um, how how organisations operate, how they relate to each other, and the forces standing behind organisations. It's not always easy to find those things out. There, there are processes in the world which mitigate against that, such as secrecy and power. Uh, and uh, the, the the aim of investigative research is to, to get underneath the the front uh, of which which is much of politics to the. Uh, the workings underneath of how our society is turned into the kind of thing it is by which I mean of course the kinds of uh, inequalities that we see in contemporary society and also the relation the set of relationships there is between states um, by which I mean the prosecution of war uh, and human rights abuses uh, and the like so I've done that kind of research since um, I started out uh, um, when I first Um, darkened the door of the Glasgow University Media Group at Glasgow University. Uh, Just after the end of the miners' strike, I popped my head around the door and said, hello, I'm David, can I help? And when they uh, had worked out that I wasn't a special branch agent, they said, yes, you can. Uh, And they brought me in and I started to do research uh, on television news and television news bias with the media group. Uh, Eventually got getting a research job there, working on... Um, the, uh, on issues like um, uh, the, the, the attacks that there were on the media group at the time, uh, on HIV and AIDS, on health and science and uh, and their role in the media, and also started to do um, a PhD uh, in the late 80s on the conflict in the north of Ireland. And uh, that's a conflict which is peculiarly relevant to the topics we might go on to talk about later for reasons I'll explain. So that's, in the work on Northern Ireland uh, and in the work I did on HIV and AIDS and on health and science, I became very, very interested, um, not just in the question of media bias and the way in which mainstream media are consistently biased towards power holders in our society, but I also became interested in how that was accomplished, not just by the, looking at the way in which journalists operated, but looking at the way in which information was supplied to newsrooms every day in the way in which official sources, meaning the government and to some extent corporations, were always able to dominate the news, always able to set the frame of reference uh, and always able to skew the news towards the interests of the powerful. And that's a a well-known and established fact in all media sociology, and there's no point in us even discussing the the merits of it because it's simply true. Uh, But I became interested in the way in which information uh, control uh, and information supply was able to manipulate and manage the news. And that directed my attention to um, the the organisations and institutions which were producing information to be supplied to newsrooms, by which, of course, we mean the information and communication apparatus of the state and of corporations, uh, usually referred to as public relations or communications, uh, and previously, of course, referred to uh, uh, back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, as propaganda. Uh, now, propaganda is a good term for, for those kinds of activities because it, uh, it says something about the, the concrete effects that propaganda has on the society. It, it suggests, it comes from the word, doesn't it, for, to propagate, to, to make new growth in the society. Uh, and that, that's better, I think, than information supply, which sounds much more passive uh, and better than public relations. The idea that uh, that um, propaganda is only about negotiating between different people's interests. Well, no, no, it's not. Propaganda is always about uh, the pursuit of interest and the imposition of interest, the attempted imposition of interest. So I, I became very interested in propaganda. Uh, in the question of HIV and AIDS, looked at the way in which the, the Department of Health and uh, and the, the Moral Conservative movement were, were operating to try and pursue particular policy agendas. And in relation to the conflict in the north of Ireland, uh, I did a lot of work in Belfast and Derry and, and other parts of the north and indeed in, in London to interviewing people who were involved in this. So from the, the political movements involved in the conflict there, both on the the uh, Republican and uh, the Loyalist or Unionist side, but also, and most importantly, at uh, the official sources of information, uh, by which of course we mean the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office, the Northern Ireland Office, the Army and the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the overwhelmingly Protestant police force uh, that then existed in the north of Ireland. Now, uh, I I don't know if people will have seen, but there's a a film just out called The Man Who Knew Too Much about Colin Wallace, who was employed, and of course I interviewed Colin for my research back in the day, uh, who was employed by um the ministry of defense but was also secretly employed by the intelligence agencies and he had a covert job description and his his role to to summarize a, a whole load of information which you would get from that film his role was to plant false information in the press to which would pursue the interests of the intelligence services not always the same as the interests of the government of the day but but uh but certainly the interests of the intelligence services and and that that meant uh, publishing and planting false information uh, misinformation and disinformation—it was part of what was called then psychological operations, a term which the army now tries to uh, pretend is not part of its raison d'être, but of course uh, remains part of its its uh, rationale and its its reasoning and part of its its operations. As as it indicated in the activities of uh, the seventy seventh brigade, which we might come back to later on. So Colin was involved in propaganda. Uh, I, I became very interested in propaganda and the way in which it could help to skew. The media and help to uh, pursue a particular interest in the conflict. And so I, I came to see propaganda and information control as being really central to um, not just the manipulation of the media, but to, to the, the kind of harnessing of society in a particular direction. And so from then on, I became uh, I, I became a, a sort of researcher in propaganda, in public relations, I did a large project on uh, corporate public relations, looking at the ways in which corporations used propaganda, the same thing, um, uh, to pursue their interests, which took me into the whole area of corporate spin, of uh, of uh, deception uh, and the like. But and uh, then also, um, I want to remove from, from the question of manipulating the media into the question of corporate influence on government, uh, which takes one, of course, straight to the question of lobbying, uh, corporate lobbying, the question of transparency in lobbying, uh, the, the extent to which we know which are the corporations which are pulling the strings between behind particular policy initiatives. And, and I guess everyone is now familiar with that kind of idea. Back in the day when I started doing this work, what would it be, the, the early 90s, uh, it, it wasn't so clear. But everyone now knows that there are, are links between corporations, uh, money, lobbying, government ministers and policy outcomes Uh, and uh, you know it couldn't be more visible in the the current uh, conservative government but this has been the case for for some considerable period of time now going back at least to the 1980s when the lobbying industry was unleashed by the Thatcher uh, administrations from 79 to 1990. So I became interested in all of that the question not just of information control and propaganda an influence on the media, but the, the, the influence of propaganda and lobbying on um, policy outcomes and then on uh, outcomes in society. So that, that's, that's kind of what got me into this. And I started by saying that I was an investigative researcher. You know, when you start to do work in this area, you very clearly, very quickly come across the fact that um, powerful interests do not want you to know what they're doing. And so you can't, rock up and say, hello, Mr. Powerful person, uh, can you tell me all the terrible things that you're doing? You have to go and interview them, certainly, um, but you have to find other ways of uh, of, un- of undermining and getting past the secrecy and the, the front that they put up. And of course, there are ways of doing that. And the, the internet has made that much more easy, uh, much, uh, much, um, the, the way in which you can gather data now uh, with social media and with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the internet, has made it easier to find things out about um, powerful organisations, and of course, the the fact the fact of digital information has made it easier for uh, whistleblowers to get huge tranches of information out uh, into the public domain, as we see with uh, uh, WikiLeaks and uh, all the various other uh, uh, known um, um, leaks of, of di- digital information. We see it today in the Pandora Papers, for example. So that, that, that's me. I mean, I, I do I investigate stuff. I investigate the powerful. Uh, and I, w- I want to understand how our society is in such a state, wh- why it is so divided and so unequal, why our society allows or condones or facilitates the waging of aggressive war on peoples overseas. Uh, and and of course, the point of that is to not just to understand it, but to to change it.
0: And also, I think it would be great if you give us a rundown of what exactly Powerbase is and how you were and are involved in it. It's a great resource for me and many others that I know.
1: So, uh, in, I mean, the, the, a, a key moment in this the, the whole trajectory. I mean, I started off doing work on Northern Ireland, but then... Um, I then did a lot of work on uh, health and science and those kinds of issues. But a key moment, which brought me back to the question of conflict, was 9-11. Uh, and uh, very shortly after 9-11, I, I did a piece in The Guardian about uh, um, the manipulation of opinion polls on Afghanistan. And I started to do a lot of work on that on that kind of the build to war in Afghanistan and then uh, in Iraq. And it became apparent. That as a result of that work, and as a result of work on lobbying in um, Scotland, uh, in, in the new Scottish around the new Scottish Parliament, it became apparent that um, these issues weren't going away. That the issue of lobbying, of transparency around lobbying, and the issue of, of state lying and, and propaganda, as in the weapons of mass destruction, in you know, Iraq, weren't going away. And it wasn't really sufficient for uh, to do something about that for academics just to publish academic work. There had to be some kind of campaigning body which could do investigative journalism and campaign for more transparency. So we set up, we decided, two of us, two academics and two journalists, to set up um, public interest investigations, which set up the website uh, SpinWatch. And we did a lot of research and uh, published reports. Uh, and then we came across the, uh, uh, the experience of Wikipedia. And then in the States, um, uh, an organization called um, this infopedia, which now is called SourceWatch, run by our colleagues in the Center for Media and Democracy, um, who uh, who did a lot of research on uh, public relations and spin. And so we decided that we we probably should start up a a wiki based database on spin, lobbying, propaganda, and the manipulation of public debate. And so we said we set that up. We called it SPRIM Profiles at the beginning. And then we later, later we changed its name to, to Powerbase. And it has, I don't know, 20,000, 25,000 pages on it um, of, uh, of profiles of individuals and organisations which are engaged in um, uh, lobbying, corporate spin, propaganda, uh, um, manipulation of public debate, etc. Et and so we, the, the, the aim was that there this, this should be a public repository of um, uh, sourced carefully sourced information and, uh, and evidenced information about organizations which were engaged in in the power structure in some way in in pursuing um, the interests of the powerful uh, over the interests of, of the interest more generally of the public and so that that's been going that power base has been going now for i don't know um 15 years maybe um and it, it continues to monitor um abuse and uh lobbying and to try and put that stuff in the public domain so it's it's intended to be a public resource uh, and what the, the beauty of it is that um when we have a, a reasonable page on, a, on an individual or an organization quite often if someone googles their name that our, one of our pages will come up in the first page of google hits and people will be you know be able to see uh what what, what should we say let's not say alternative facts but people can see the kind of the the evidence base uh, underlying the the activities of this organization, which would be quite different usually to their own claims about themselves.
0: Yeah, without the PR, without the sort of careful management of PR, which is afforded uh, today by the mainstream media. So then from this understanding of the way power functions within society, how do you define and the book that you were involved in, what is Islamophobia, social movements from above is really essential reading for all? how would you define Islamophobia?
1: So um, one of the things that we've done all the way through this is to is to say look, that our system does not operate by um, just invisible ineluctable economic or political laws that our system has to be put in place and reproduced every day by the active role of individuals and organizations. Uh, And that that means, you know, uh, um, corporations, states, uh, and um, communication and media organizations are all day in, day out involved in in producing and reproducing the uh, inequalities which we see around us uh, every day, so our, our view has always been that we, that it's important not to overemphasise agency in the creation of uh, inequality, but that we have to give agency its place uh, as creating structures and recreating structures and changing structures. So that's why we. Are keen on talking about structures, but we're also keen on talking about agency, and I, I think that's a, a key thing. Some people don't understand; they think that that uh, you know that we, we we commit the voluntaristic error or something, and or that we uh, we are, we're involved in conspiracy or something. No, of course, you know people people engaged in trying to manage the political agenda, which is everyone involved in politics, uh, are engaged in conspiracies. They are they they do conspire to pursue their own interests, sometimes secretly, sometimes not secretly. Uh, and uh, but the, that is co- it's just simply called the pursuit of interest. It's what politics is. And so we are, we, we've been interested in that, and, but we're interested in that in the context of the creation of structures. So it's not that, that conspiracies rule or that there's some secret conspiracy which runs the world, which is obviously preposterous, but, the, but there are uh, political agendas which are put forward by organisations and they fight it out uh, over, over the rewards that they can or, or can't get so, we that's what we've been interested in. And so when when, we, when it comes to racism, racism is not so, something in line with that perspective. Racism is not something which is just there in the structure of society, which we can't do anything about, and which hasn't been put in place by by certain organisations. It's something which is actively put in place by institutions and organisations. And and if that's the case, then we can we can say who they are. We, we should be able to point to them and their evidence. who who they are it's it's put in place in in, in an active process and uh, and, you know the the easy way to to demonstrate that is to say well you know are all forms of racism always equally present in the society and of course they're not Uh, you know the the massive increase in islamophobia after 9 11 is not an accident it didn't just happen because it was it was the muslims turn it's been the jews turn before and now it's the muslims turn it happened because of the pursuit of interest. Racism is about the pursuit of interest. It's not some kind of expression of a latent hostility between races in the world. It's not some kind of uh, uh, always present uh, function of hu- of human society. Racism is a, a, a doctrine which is put in place which dis- concretely disadvantages particular groups who are in the in the lingo racialized, who are determined to be like a race, and of course the you know the predominant one. Uh, in, the, in the contemporary period, it's is Muslims that, that that are racialized in that kind of way. So, we don't see racism as being something which is just about uh, hatred or hate crimes or attacks on the street. Important though they are, uh, racism is something which is is, a, is structural in the society, but it is it changes in the society. The, the groups who are the recipients, who are the targets of racism, change in society, and that that relates not to some generalized hatred of. Uh, of people of colour, by white people, but to the interests of the powerful. Uh, And I I mean, I think that's true of racism in general, but let's talk specifically about Islamophobia. When you talk about a form of racism which is important in the society, then you have to look at what are the interests which drive that form of racism, and therefore also who, who are the institutions and individuals who are carrying those interests, who pursue those interests. It's their interests. It's not the generalised interests of the system. It's their interests, uh, as well as more general, in a, in a more general sense. And in the case of Islamophobia, what we find, uh, you know, everyone knows this, don't they, that, that Islamophobia increases as a result of the war on terror. And why does it increase as a result of the war on terror? Because you know, powerful organisations, uh, in particular Western states, and their counter-terrorism apparatus, the intelligence services, the military, uh, the defence establishment, uh, um, decide that, that, that Muslims have to be uh, disadvantaged and targeted because that's the way to legitimate the uh, policy um, uh, options that they want to impose. In, in the post 11 period, the invasion of Af- Afghanistan, the invasion of, of Iraq. Uh, and then, latterly, of course, the you know, actions against uh, Libya uh, and indeed Syria and many other actions, which people are aware of. So, Islamophobia comes from the interests of what, what should we call it? The uh, the uh, the the complex, isn't it? I mean, the military-industrial complex, yes. But the 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 complex of actors and individuals who want to single out uh, uh, Muslims, and in, in the case of the UK. The, the, what we say is that there are five pillars of Islamophobia. That the main backbone of Islamophobia is the state counterterrorism apparatus. That's in this country the the defence establishment, the foreign office, the home office, MI5 and MI6, GCHQ, uh, and indeed the whole panoply of other public sector organisations which pursue counterterrorism initiatives under the Counterterrorism and Security Act, where public servants uh, in universities and and podiatrists and nurseries and dentists etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, have to be part of the counterterrorism apparatus. That's the main thing which, day in day out, causes disadvantages for Muslims in our society. Not the EDL on the street, not attacks on Muslims and women having the hijab ripped off. Awful how those things are. You know, the 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 way in which men of Pakistani origin, when that's the way the stats are are, are um, compiled, are 140. Times are so more likely to be stopped and searched uh, under uh, the, the prevention terrorism act that, that uh, are on the way in and out of the country than our um, uh, people uh, of white uh, ethnicity. So we, we see that, that that's the, the the main backbone of Islamophobia is the state, uh, and you know you know big surprise. Um, so that's the first thing, first uh, the first pillar we would say of Islamophobia. But we go on to say that. Uh, that um there are also four social movements and these are social movements which we've categorized in a rather general way but we we can we can specify them four social movements which help to um push the society towards the targeting of muslims and to disadvantage muslims further uh, and to push the state further uh, in its um uh, its islamophobia uh, and we we identify these social movements as being uh, first of all, the, the neoconservative movement, uh, a movement which people often think is just based in, in the US, but of course has very strong representation in this country and in many other countries too, uh, through think tanks like the Henry Jackson Society, the most obvious one, and to some extent the policy exchange and many other institutions and organisations. So the neoconservative movement, important there. Uh, secondly, the, the, the counter-jihad movement uh, and the far-right um People think of the far right. We used to think of the far right as being the National Front of the British National Party, but of course, the more recent uh, kids in the block here are people who style themselves the Counter Jihad Movement, i.e., the, the anti-Muslim movement. Effectively, uh, the EDL, uh, Pegida, whole series of other organisations across uh, across Europe. So far, so uncontroversial, probably. And then the other two organisations, uh, movements we we identify are a sort of rag bag of groups on the left, uh, some feminist organizations, the pro-war left, some elements of the secular movement, uh, indeed some mem- uh, some elements of the LBTQI uh, movement as well, uh, as part of, as being engaged in uh, anti-Islamic or anti, uh, uh, anti-Muslim anti uh, activities. I could talk more about that if you, you would wish. And then the fourth of these uh, um, four social movements we said and um, we say is parts of the zionist movement and that's of course the thing which has uh, caused uh, debate controversy and uh, um, uh, and uh, and alarm uh, on some sections of the left and indeed of course amongst the zionists themselves and what we say about that is that that um that parts of the zionist movement and when we wrote the book we had done much less research on this than we now have but I'll come back to that. When we wrote the book, we we said parts of the Zionist movement because what we were talking about specifically was the involvement of pro-Israel groups um, uh, and especially um, large uh, philanthropic and foundation groups in funding uh, activities which were Islamophobic, and by which we meant uh, yes. The far right, because there are pro-Israel groups that fund the far right uh, and pro-Israel groups in the, in the US, for example, have funded uh, Tommy Robinson, Stephen Yaxley-Lennon's uh, legal fees, etc. But also the funding of uh, core Islamophobic uh, groupings in, the, in both the states and in, and in this country. Right? And, so that, and that's a fact. We've we, been. We have the data. We have the receipts. We have the the, uh, the annual reports and accounts at uh, the Charity Commission or the Internal Revenue Service in the US, which show that there is that, that connection. And on on top of that, the other other evidence we have is that many of those organisations are also supporting, uh, uh, directly supporting settlement activity beyond the green line uh, in Palestine. Um, uh, you know, this is this is not controversial in the sense that it's obviously and trivially true. Um, no one has has ever disputed any of the facts that we have uh, dug up on this matter, and that's because they can't, because it's there in black and white in the in the figures. So we, we say that the, that these these Zionist organisations, pro-Israel organisations, are funding yes the far right, also the neo-conservative movement, uh, and, and to some extent some elements of the of left Islamophobia as well, and. Uh, uh, and that's what that's where we were at the, at the stage uh, of of, um, uh, of publishing the book, and then when I subsequently did my lecture on Islamophobia for students in two thousand and nineteen at the University of Bristol. And it's important to note that the
0: one side of the sort of symbiotic relationship is the a lot of the mainstream media. So, for example, you look at someone like Rupert Murdoch. Um, He's on the board of Genie Energy, which is an oil and gas company alongside James Wolseley, who former head of the CIA, who is one of the founding signatories of the Henry Jackson Society, which, of course, shares funders with the friends of the IDF and illegal settlements in the West Bank. Uh, That company, Genie Energy, has also got contracts from the Israeli government to develop oil and gas in uh, the Israeli-occupied part of Syria, the Jolan Heights. We also know that Robert Shillman, who was on the board of directors for the Friends of the IDF, um, I'm gonna say that again, just uh, without the cough. We also know that Robert Shillman, who was on the board for the Friends of the IDF, um, who also funds the Friends of the IDF, Christians United for Israel, the JNF, which builds illegal settlements, was a direct funder of Tommy Robinson, according to his former employee, Lucy Brown, to the tune of £10,000 per month as a Shillman Fellow at the David Horowitz uh, Centre. We also know the Middle East Forum funded Tommy Robinson, uh, his legal fees. The director of the Middle East Forum is Greg Roman, a former employee of the Israeli Ministry of Defence and the Israeli Foreign Ministry. Uh, As you went into, there's other connections with major figures on the Islamophobic sort of celebrity scene in Britain. But Sarah Marusik in the book, What is Islamophobia? found that 75% of the organisations which fund the Islamophobia industry, so these kind of organisations like Middle East Forum and the Henry Jackson Society, also fund the building of illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank, which are in violation of UN Resolution 2334. Um, you also see the relationship between organizations that fund ELAD, the uh, settler organization. I mean, it's worth remembering also about Rupert Murdoch that News corps Foundation um, was one of the funders of the Jerusalem Foundation, which builds settlements in uh, Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. And so, what you have is this relationship whereby the Center for Security Policy in the United States, which is given the credit for the by the White House for the intellectual foundation for the Muslim ban, it's not only funded by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, but is also funded by the Claremont Family Foundation, which in turn also funded Tommy Robinson through the Middle East Forum and ELAD. Um, so, you have all of these kind of interlocking uh situations with the zionist movement even from sheldon adelson biggest funder of settlements in the west bank also funding uh islamophobic organizations uh the marcus foundation the paul e singer foundation again funding the uh, friends of the idf and also funding islamophobic organizations as well so as you say this is something that is clearly documented which um uh, if people look at the brilliant work that you and others have done on this, then it's something that they really can't argue with. These are organizations that define themselves as Zionist organizations that are funding both settlements and funding these organizations, which society clearly understands to be Islamophobic organisations. Where did the first complaint about your
1: work come from? So I, I um, started at the University of Bristol in September 2018 and five months later I was doing a lecture on Islamophobia where I was discussing in part um, the, uh, the the parts of the Zionist movement involved in funding uh, Islamophobia and um, uh, the a month or so later the Community Security Trust Um, complained to the university that uh, my lecture had involved anti-Semitic tropes or potentially involved anti-Semitic tropes and that uh, it was uh, intimidating for Jewish students. Uh, Now the Community Security Trust and I have a long history going back um, many years before that. Uh, The the Community Security Trust is an organization which styles itself as uh, the defender of the Jewish people and uh, a campaigner against anti-Semitism uh, as not a pro-Israel organization. But in reality, of course, it's unable to or unwilling to distinguish between uh, Jewish people and Zionism and uh, is actually an active defender of the Israeli state. Uh, my first encounter with the CST came again in the case of the uh, Immigration Appeal Tribunal against uh, uh, Sheikh. Salah, who uh, was a Palestinian leader who had come to the UK, um, and the CST had been involved with the Home Office in uh, in deciding that he shouldn't be allowed into the country. But he came into the country uh, because they didn't know um, when he was coming, and they then uh, arrested him and uh, um, they took a case against him. But the case was based largely on information supplied to the Home Office by the CST, and we were able to look at that evidence and show that it had been effectively uh, um, doctored at some point in the process. You know, they didn't search the word Jewish in one of his poems, which wasn't there, uh, and there were many other distortions and misrepresentations uh, amongst the evidence. And I gave evidence as a, an expert for the, the defence, for Salah's defence, uh, and um, that was in part the reason that the case against him was lost um, by the government, and indeed uh, the, there were sharp words for the CSTs Um, uh, activities in the judgment. I mean, the the CST had, and I had previous, and uh, they put this complaint in in April 2018, sorry, in April 2019, and it was then rejected by the university because the CST is not a student and doesn't have a locus in making a complaint according to the university's policies, which uh, is quite the appropriate response. The CST then, of course, uh, approached Uh, the Union of Jewish Students uh, in London uh, and um, prevailed upon them to write a letter of complaint Uh, and the UGS then uh, recruited the president of the Bristol Jewish Society uh, which is part of the UGS uh, to sign that complaint and of course that complaint was accepted because she was, uh, that is the president of the Bristol JSOC was a student uh, at the university at the time although she had never been my student never attended any of my lectures, etc. And that complaint was put into the university uh, in 2019 and was then uh, rejected by the university. It was rejected uh, on the grounds that it was uh, uh, it, it, did, it didn't make its case uh, and uh, that uh, the comments that they were complaining about that I had made were um, not anti-Semitic. Were in fact just critical of Israel. And I should point out that. Um, that complaint um, included uh, five examples of things I was alleged to have said or had written, uh, uh, stretching back to 2013. So they tried to cobble the effectively ridiculous list of uh things that I had said that they they misquoted me and they, they um, misinterpreted what I'd said and pretended that that, that, that was evidence of anti-Semitism when it you know, patently wasn't. Uh, and so that's when, we, that's when we got to the end of the first process. Um, but they then appealed and there was a further process. Uh, and uh, I, I can't really talk much about that that process except say that I was entirely exonerated in that process uh, of anything remotely like uh, anti-Semitism. Now, that's uh, something which uh, uh, people I, I don't really know and haven't been told. But that that was a process which which ended by the by which was ended by the beginning of of, of this year, and was was entirely separate to the the next um, investigation which I was put uh, made made to put to uh, to um, undergo, which started in in March this year. So there's been two separate investigations, uh, and um, uh, people are I think are unaware of that uh, so far. I think it's also
0: important for people to understand that, you know, according to Anthony Lerman, who's the founder of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, the Community Security Trust um, volunteers have been trained by Israel's uh, external intelligence service. It's also known that the Community Security Trust has been found to be given lists of anti-Zionist Jews to the Home Office, designating them as extreme groups and encouraging the Home Office to take uh, harsh measures towards them. Um, in what other ways can we say that the Community Security Trust is clearly linked to the Israeli state?
1: Well, I mean, the the, the founder of the CST, Gerald Ronson, the convicted fraudster, uh, is one of Netanyahu's um, millionaires, as as was revealed in a leaked document in the Israeli press some years ago. Um, Netanyahu came to visit him when he was in prison. Um, I think, on, uh, I'm not sure if it, was on, if it was on parole, but when he was in prison, he was Netanyahu. I mean, very close to, to, to Netanyahu. Uh, and of course, the, many of the activities they've been involved in have been activities which are um, pro-Israel activities. They were involved in the, the Fair Play campaign group. Um, the group set up to counteract BDS. That's not the activity of, an organisation which simply is about defending uh, Jews from uh, contemporary manifestations of anti-Semitism. It's 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 well known that the CST is a pro-Israel group, and it's well known it finds it very difficult to distinguish between anti-Israel and anti-Semitic commentary. In fact, it deliberately blurs the two together. So when it's talking about uh, what it calls left-wing or Muslim anti-Semitism, it will quite often put that on the same page as... um, as uh, photographs of actual, of actual and traditional anti-Semitism from the right, uh, and that's dishonest, uh, and uh, that's that's the way, but that's the way they operate. They want to be able to say that there's such a thing as left-wing anti-Semitism, that there's such a thing as, especially as Muslim anti-Semitism, uh, and uh, that that in itself raises questions about the kinds of activities that the uh, CST is involved in. Uh, I had never raised those kinds of questions before and didn't raise them in 2019, the CST complained that I had described it as Islamophobic and I, I hadn't described it as, as Islamophobic at that stage. Uh, um, I, I had very deliberately kept that separate and, and made no comments about what the, the CST was doing in relation to, to Islam and Muslims, etc. Um, and uh, and so the, what we were talking about then was, was there was very clear Uh, 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 incidences of Islamophobia, as you've been talking about. But, you know, it's very clear that the CST is engaged in activities uh, um, which blurs together the the, uh, anti-Zionism of of Muslim and left-wing people in this country of anti-Zionist Jews uh, with uh, anti-Semitism. And that that in itself, you know, arguably makes them uh, engaged in activities which are biased against Muslims. It's also
0: worth um, clarifying that Zionism has actually always been a minority movement. At the time of the World Zionist uh, Congress, the first one, um, initially it had been planned to take place in Germany, but the German Union of Rabbis opposed it um, uh, very clearly. And that meant that because of this opposition from the German Union of Rabbis and others in the Jewish community, it had to take place in Basel, Switzerland. instead. But moreover, the person credited with coining the phrase Zionism, Nathan Birnbaum, later became an anti-Zionist. We also know that out of 16 million Jewish people in the world, only around 6 million of them are Israeli citizens. So we can deduce from that that Zionism is quite clearly a minority movement. while. People that are pushing Zionism have, um, have, <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, I'll just forget that bit. Hold on, hold on. Okay. And so the next question I wanted to ask you, David, is in terms of the UJS, what
1: was the next step? Uh, well, I mean, what, what happened was that, um, through this period from uh, April 2019 onwards, they, they, um, the UGS uh, and uh, others associated kept up this uh, drumbeat of, uh, of, of def- defamation of me, uh, of descriptions of me as an anti-Semite, false descriptions of me as an anti-Semite. Uh, they, they, you know, they then complained about the University of Bristol not properly engaging with their complaint. The president of the JSOC put into the public domain that she was the author of the complaint against me, as did uh, the president of the UGS at the time. Um, they both made it public that they had complained about me. Uh, and, um, and so there was an ongoing uh, campaign against me in the press. So I m- remember there was, a, there was a piece in The Telegraph at the time. Uh, and then the CST made public comments, uh, which were defamatory of me. And uh, and, and uh, I, I wrote long uh, Twitter threads in, in response to that, as, as people can see uh, online if they go on look it up. And then the the next part of the process was that uh, that uh, I um, made some public comments uh, in February, um, this year, where I said uh, I, that the head of the JSOC at Bristol and the head of the UGS, um, the president of the UGS had attacked and complained about me, um, which they had. Uh, I didn't say that their complaints were ridiculous or preposterous or uh effectively fake complaints which they were um i just said that they had attacked and complained about me and this was this apparently was something which i shouldn't have done uh, um that i i had somehow breached my duty of care to students or i had offended people or something by simply reporting something which was factual which was in the public domain and which should be put into the public domain by the people i was actually talking about so that, that led, led to a kind of open season where uh, um, all sorts of Zionist organizations, you know, uh, including five you've never heard of, complained to the university about me. Um, there was no formal complaint against me uh, at all uh, in accordance with the university's um, own um, procedures. But nevertheless, the university announced an investigation of me in March, and that investigation has just concluded with me, uh, being sacked um, uh, i can't really talk too much about that investigation suffice to say that it's a, it's a travesty um, uh, and um, i wanted to make a special point of saying that the university statement uh given um last the end of last week uh, says that they had commissioned a qC who had concluded that none of my comments uh were um, uh, broke the law that my comments were lawful and and that's true the, the report did say that but the report also said and this is important and i i i wanted the university to to make this plain and they haven't uh they also the report also said explicitly that my comments were not anti-semitic they did not engage or exceed uh the uh equality act of 2010 uh, and uh that's been missing in much of the commentary that there's been some of the I have seen some headlines which said that I have been sacked for anti-Semitism, which is untrue, which is defamatory. And we've had some, some of those headlines changed already. Hopefully, if there's more, we'll have them change too. Uh, but also it's been said that I've been that I've been sacked after being after complaints about anti-Semitism have been have been made. Well, that in itself is misleading because I was found not guilty of those complaints. And uh, um of course that's something which the people who've been campaigning against me are uh, unsurprisingly, reluctant to admit. Uh, so that that's been a really very serious uh, assault to my reputation. No. Uh, I, you know, as ma- many people know, I'm a lifelong anti-racist. Uh, you know, the, the, there is not a shred of evidence in any comma phrase or sentence I have ever said that it, that any of my comments have ever been uh, anti-Semitic. I'm very well aware of the difference between the Jews as the people. And Zionism as a political ideology. These things are different. Many Jews are not Zionists, as you say, and indeed many Zionists are not Jews, as everyone points out with the, the Christian Zionists, etc., etc. So the, the, the idea that to criticise Zionism as a political ideology or to criticise the actions or indeed the foundation of the state of Israel is political commentary. It's not to do with hating Jews. It, it, it's got nothing at all to do with hating jews and uh, that's something which people need to to recognize but which of course uh, those who are pro israel uh, in a zionist movement don't want to recognize that because they want to blur together zionism and the jews and in fact say that zionism is something fundamental to the jews and that, that's you know that's a political strategy and we should recognize it as that
0: absolutely i think it's also important that we make abundantly clear the relationship between the UJS and the state of Israel. Adam Shapira, who was a candidate for president of the UJS, asserted that the Israeli embassy funds the UJS. Also, we know that through the Massa Israel Journey Program, of which the UJS directs its members towards, the space is open for members of the UJS to join the IDF, through a program called Garin Tezabar. Now, this program is a kind of holistic, all-encompassing approach to enlisting foreign nationals into the IDF. It involves five seminars before being moved to a kibbutz, where they develop a network with those around them, and then they are integrated into the Israeli army. According to the IDF, this program Garin Tezabor, which UJS members can join through the Massa Israel Journey Programme, has helped enlist over 1,500 teens from all around the world. And actually, it is a gateway not only for military service, but also for the claiming of Israeli citizenship, as the IDF would put forward that 70% of those that come into the IDF through this program, stay on in the State of Israel after this military service is completed, which can go from 14 to 18 months. You also have another organization, which the Massa Journey Program can plug people into called MAVA. Now, essentially, it's an eight-week-long program for which $2,000 are charged where students are taught about life in the IDF. They are not only exposed to a quote-unquote mentally demanding program, they also use uh, M16s with live ammunition in target practice. And you also see students taken to the Gadna base in the the southern uh, Naqab desert. Now, this is a place where Israeli school children are militarized by the Israeli state. And what happens is the MARVA students that come through this program are integrated into the process. You have even seen MARVA programs extend as far as the Israeli occupied Jolan Heights in Syria. And this program has a proven track record as uh, serving as a gateway to young people from around the world some of them not israeli citizens or jews joining uh, the idf you also have something in the ujs called the israel campus fellow uh, program whereby members of the ujs can get quote unquote according to their own website exclusive access to top speakers They can get access to resources that help you facilitate Israel-related events. You can then go on to, quote-unquote, be the leader for national and sometimes international Israel campaigns. And it also provides opportunities to bring your peers um, on campus uh, to, to visit Israel. What you also have is seemingly a connection between those that have worked in official positions at the UJS, like Yair Zivan, who was campaign director at the UJS, went on to be press officer for the IDF and was later on the international media coordinator for Shimon Peres as the president of Israel. You also have other figures that have used this same journey Into positions not only in the IDF, but in the Israeli government. Constitutionally, the Union of Jewish Students is a Zionist organization. It states very clearly that one of its core values is encouraging engagement with Israel. And its aim is to inspire Jewish students to make an enduring commitment to the state of Israel. Its current chief executive. Aria Miller was not only formerly the executive director of the Zionist organization, but also previously worked for the Israeli embassy in London. We also know that the UJS gives Jewish students awards for arranging visits to their campus uh, by figures from the Israeli government. They promote the Birthright campaign, which is about encouraging jewish people to become israeli they also work very closely with Bicom, which is a well known israel lobby group what are the other ways in which the ujs is linked to the israeli government if that is something you can get into
1: well i mean the, the, as we saw in the lobby program i'll just hear this lobby program we 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 know as you said that. um they get funding from the embassy, uh, but they also get core funding from the United Jewish Israel Appeal. Um, now, people will not necessarily know what that organisation is. It's the biggest fundraiser for Israel in the UK, and it's headed and has been headed for many, many years by Trevor Chin, who, of course, also uh, funded uh, starts leadership race for the Labour Party and then became a, a strategic advisor. For sorry the party.
0: david so sorry david can you just repeat the sentence about trevor chin because the connection uh went out a little bit there
1: so the the ugs gets core funding from the united jewish israel appeal which is the biggest pro israel funding organization in the country uh, which is headed and has been headed for many years by uh trevor chin who uh is of course known as a funder of Starmer's leadership campaign for the Labour Party, and subsequently became uh, a Labour campaign advisor uh, in the period after Starmer's election victory in the party. Uh, And Trevichin is, uh, if we might put it like this, is one of the most senior officers of the Zionist movement. Now, when I use a phrase like that, the Zionist movement, sometimes people say, well, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Is that something which is a kind of loose co- coal- uh, coalition of, of organizations? And I, I would say, well, there is a formal Zionist movement. Uh, and Again, people, when I say formal, they say, well, you know, are the card carrying members? And, and the answer to that is yes, there are card carrying members in the Zionist movement. You look on the Zionist Federation's website, you can see their membership cards, but I'm not really talking about um, card carrying members. I'm talking more about the organizational structure of the zionist movement and, that, and there is a very very clear organizational structure which one can find by looking on their websites you know the the investigative investigative research technique of looking on the websites of organizations uh which are part of the movement and the zionist movement as you said started uh in the dying years of the 19th century and it's an organization a movement which has has formal membership uh, underneath the, the, the most important organization in the movement, which is the World Zionist Organization. And there's a clue in the name there. The World Zionist Organization is a global organization. Uh, and the, the World Zionist Organization in the Zionist Congresses, which came after the, the creation of the, the, uh, the WZO, uh, um, has several other key bodies which form the uh, the headquarters, if you like, the backbone of the Transnational Science Movement, that's the Jewish National Fund, Keren Hazod, uh, and um, the Jewish Agency. Now these are four organizations which are all based in the same building in Jerusalem called National Institutions House. Uh, And these four organizations are known as the National Institutions, meaning Israeli National Institutions. They have a curious status in Israel which is that they're sort of non-government organizations, but also sort of governmental organizations. And that's used to the advantage of the Israeli government in various and in the Zionist movement in various ways. But let's just stay with the formal Zionist movement. These four organizations constitute the, the head of the Zionist movement, and their supreme body which rules the Zionist movement, uh, and these organizations is the Zionist Congress, which meets every every few years to take decisions which will affect all of the Movement. That is all the formal members of the movement. And the the formal members of the movement underneath these four organizations are, on the one hand, the members of the World Zionist Organization, that is the Zionist Federations in each country. And in this country, the Zionist Federation of the UK has something like 40 members, including some synagogues, but also a whole range of other pro Israel groups. They're all formal members of the Zionist Federation, which is formally a member of the, the WZO and thus of the Zionist movement. Uh, And then the other organisations I mentioned earlier, Sir Trevor Chin's uh, United Jewish Israel Appeal, it's the UK member of Karen Hazod, uh, uh, one of the four national institutions, and thus formerly a member of the Zionist organisation, of the Zionist movement. Uh, The JNF, the Jewish National Fund, which, as you said, is engaged in uh, in, uh, expropriating land, Palestinian land and uh, giving it to Jews, can only give it to Jews. Uh, There's a UK version of that called the JNF UK, uh, and then the Jewish agency, which doesn't have a, an organisational um, base in this country, but ha- has an office I- in this country. So all four of them have offices here. And they also have members, membership uh, organisations. So J- the JNF is a member of the JNF in, in, in Israel. And the UJI is a member of the of Karen Hazard. And now, the, where does the, the UGS fit into this? Is it part of this structure? Yes, it is. The UGS, which oversees all JSOC's Jewish societies, on campus, as far as we know, there are no JSOCs, which are not part of the UGS, uh, is a member and is guaranteed a seat on the the executive of the World Union of Jewish Students. So the person who made the complaint about me, who was president of the UGS, was at the same time uh, on the executive of the World Union of Jewish Students. So you can see that connection. The World Union of Jewish Students is, of course, itself a direct member of the World Zionist Organization. And as such, is allowed to elect delegates to Zionist Congress, the supreme decision-making body of the, the movement. So when I say the formal Zionist movement, that's what I'm talking about. It's the formal organization. You can, you can, you can list and delimit the precise members of that, that that movement. Then, of course, there's an informal Zionist movement, which is beyond the formal Zionist movement. The CST, which we mentioned earlier, is not part of the formal Zionist movement. Indeed, it claims not even to be Zionist, but it is a pro-Israel organization. The Jewish labor movement uh, uh, is part of the the labor party. Is it a formal part of the the Zionist movement or not? Well, yes, it's a formal part of the Zionist movement uh, and and thus is subject to the discipline and the rules of the formal Zionist movement, whereas something like the the CST or Labor Friends of Israel or some other groups are not formal members of the the group. So the, the, the Union of Jewish Students is a formal member of the Zionist movement. And that's simply a matter of fact. I mean, you can see that there are all sorts of things one can say about the the formality of the the central Zionist movement and the informality of the other groups and how they relate to each other and whether they coordinate and all those kinds of questions. And of course, they do coordinate. The CST coordinated with the UGS to make complaints against me, even though one of them's formally in the Zionist movement and the other one's not. Uh, but so you can—that's an empirical question. But how do how do these organizations relate to each other? So that, that's that's a long answer to your question. People don't understand that there is a structure here to the Zionist movement, and the structure implies uh, agreed rules and agreed approaches. It doesn't doesn't mean that they don't ever disagree, but it, it doesn't mean that they do they, they do agree on some things uh, on the rules and the and the structures, and that they also do collaborate with each other. Uh, and, and again, the question is. You know, when do they collaborate, on what, and with what effect.
0: David, thank you so much for clarifying um, a lot of these important points. How can people get in contact with you and support you through the situation that you're going through now?
1: Well, there's a support campaign uh, of uh, volunteers who've been helping me, uh, 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 which is contactable through uh, supportmiller.org. Um, I am uh, uh, reachable uh, on, um, on, on email and, and, and the like, um, but the, the, the key thing I would say is that, uh, that the, the university has taken this decision um, effectively at the behest of an influence campaign on behalf of a foreign power, a hostile foreign power, and they have obviously taken this decision because they can't withstand the pressure which has been exerted on them by that influence campaign. And so, you know, the, the only real way of dealing with this is to show that people will not tolerate that kind of uh, activities, to show that that, um, that it, it, it's possible and continues to be possible for people to talk and discuss and research and lecture about Islamophobia. Uh, it, I mean, it, the fact that i've been sacked for effectively for for raising the issue of islamophobia in general and on campus uh, is an extraordinary indictment of the uh, level of debate about islamophobia in this country and indeed uh, at the university of bristol so i would say that you know the people what people can do is they know they know what they can do they can they can write letters they can engage in uh, in debate and discussion about this but it's really important to un- understand this is not just the effects of cancel culture or uh, the war on free speech. This is uh, directly about a campaign by uh, a hostile foreign state, by the state of Israel, uh, through its many uh, uh, assets or pawns, uh, to use the terminology which I was so criticized for, uh, to to destabilize the possibility of um, serious protest or raising the issue of the rights of the Palestinians. You know, I mean... in May this year, we saw the ongoing ethnic cleansing uh, in, in Jerusalem, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah and uh, in on, and we saw the response of the Israeli state and indeed of the settlers to that. Uh, and you know that that's what they don't want us to know about. That's what they don't want us to talk about. And the more that they can they continue to campaign against people like me, the more that they will have to face uh, a resistance from from the. Those who believe in Palestinian liberation. So I, I would say, you know, everybody knows what they have to do I think, uh, and uh, let's let's go on and do that.
0: So there you have it, people. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Watchdog. Get involved in the campaign. Let's do this. Solidarity with David Miller Thank you.